0: Please turn in your copy of the scriptures to the 73rd Psalm. And in the 73rd Psalm, we read, starting in verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff, and they speak with malice, and loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your wonderful works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, almighty God, we humbly bow before your presence this morning. We confess, O Lord, as your church, as your people, we are needy. We are are helpless sinners. And Lord, at times we strut around like peacocks in the kingdom. O Lord, I pray that our humility would be before thee. I pray that our hearts would hear from you, that our ears would be unclogged, and that our minds would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Holy Spirit, would you fall upon us today? Would you anoint from pulpit to pew? Would you create in us a clean heart that we, like the psalmist, may say, God is good to Israel, and God is my portion forever. O Lord, we seek you and are desirous, to have a transformative experience here today, and we recognize that apart from your grace, we are nothing but we are nothing but human beings operating in the flesh. And so, by your Spirit, I pray that you would empower me to speak forth Thy Word. I pray that our hearts would be broken before you, and I pray moreover that we wouldn't just be hearers of the Word but doers of the Word. Your kingdom and Your glory. Amen. But God. But God is our series we've been going through and we've examined several different but gods. And um, in this but God series, we see that those two words change everything. They're important. What comes before the but God and what comes after are two radically different things. Usually before the but God, we have crisis, we have difficulty, we have problems, we have uh, calamity. And then the after the but God is revival, renewal, transformation. There's the power of God. And so in our passage today, we come to our next but God, which is identified for us in verse 26, where Asaph the psalmist says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And in order to understand the, the meaning of this next but God statement, we have to see exactly what is going on in this psalm. It is a It is a very relatable psalm. It is a psalm. Uh, that begins this first book, or this third book rather, in the book of Psalms, this third section, and it is penned by Asaph. Asaph was uh, the worship leader of the congregation of Israel who was um, appointed by David. He was a man who penned many of these Psalms, uh, 12 in total, um, in the third book, and, and, and he's a spiritual man. He's a man of God. He's a man who's penning these Psalms to be sung and to to be prayed among the people of God. But Asaph, although a spiritual man, although a godly man, like all of us, struggled. And one of his struggles with, he was dealing with is understanding, why does it appear in life sometimes that wicked and evil people seem to be doing much better than God's people? Why is it that the wicked and the, the evildoer and those who hate God and the unbeliever and the reprobate, Why does it seem they succeed and prosper in everything they do? Why are they having a good life? And why are God's people, for the most part, suffering? Why do we languish? What's wrong? Where where are you, God, is the question. Where is the justice of God? Where is the fairness of God? Where are the promises of God? And it appears that that's exactly the perspective that Asaph is coming to. And I guess the question that he needs to ask himself, is God good? Not only is God good, and that statement is addressed interestingly in the first verse. Truly, God is good to Israel. Years ago, we had a member in our church, his name was Sargon, he was a godly man. Uh, They moved to Newburgh, he and his wife, and they can no longer travel here, but I remember when Sargon would open a prayer, he would always say, God is good to Israel. He would open up every prayer with Psalm 73.1. And, and, I, and I always appreciated that because it's a reminder in our expression of prayer to God that he is good. Despite the way I may feel, despite the circumstances, God is good to Israel. But then the second question that follows up, is he good enough for us? Is he good enough? That's the question that I seek to answer. When things are going good, when things are going smooth, we can say very easily, God is good and he's good enough. On the other hand, when things are going south, when things are not going well in our life, when we're dealing with trials, when we're dealing with stress, when we're dealing with health issues, when we're dealing with broken relationships, it's very difficult to say God is good. Yet we must state it regardless to profess the truth that exists outside of our feelings. Asaph came to reflect upon what's going on in his life. We don't know particularly the circumstances that leads him to this. But what he sees is that the arrogant and the wicked seem to be doing better than the godly and the righteous. And I personally see this too. How does that make you feel as a Christian? How does it make you feel when you see people seem to do well and and everybody loves them despite how wicked they are? How does it make you feel when we see people on television, whether they're movie stars or politicians? And, and and they portray themselves in such a celebrity light, and, and everybody loves them, but we know deep inside these are wicked people, and yet they're loved by many and they prosper. You see, when you start going down that dark path and you think that God is not fair and that he's not just, it could lead you into a place where you can lose your way. Asaph almost lost his way. His heart and his perspective were in the wrong place. He allowed himself to fall into despair. He allowed himself to have a pity party. And as a result, he began to have a false notion, false view of God is. And so what we want to do here today is look at the psalm in two parts. It's divided in two parts. The first part talks about Asaph's near fall. He almost lost his way. He almost slipped. And then the second half looks about his restoration. And what we want to do here is see and answer the questions, is God good, is he good enough, and therefore come to the conclusion, but God is my strength and the portion I have forever. First, the near full, verses 1 through 4. He says in verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever slipped in full, but I have. In the winter, when there's a lot of ice outside, it's very easy to miss and not see a piece of ice and your feet will go out from under you. You will fall on your back very quick. Sometimes you can get the air knocked out of you. Um, you could be walking in the woods and see a few rocks with, and you say, oh, I want to skip on those rocks along the creek. And if anyone's ever done that, you know how easy it is for your foot to slip and you will fall and get injured very quickly. There's a lot of slippery places in life There's a lot of slippery places. One of the slipperiest places we can be is when we begin to question the integrity and the fairness of God, and more importantly, become envious of the wicked. We become envious of the wicked. We become envious, not of the wicked themselves, that that they're wicked. We don't want to be wicked like them, but we're envious of the material gain that they seem to have. We're, We're... we're basically envious of their prosperity. We're envious of their wealth. We're envious of the possessions and the, and, the, and the ease of life that they have. The word prosperity here, when it talks in verse 3, where he says, I saw the envious and arrogant, and I, was, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious of the arrogant when he saw their prosperity. The word prosperity is actually the word shalom in Hebrew. And it means peace, and it means peace with God. So it seems, it appears as if everything is well between them and God, that they're at ease, that they're increasing in riches. How is it that the shalom of God has come upon the arrogant and the evildoer? And he states it, I was envious. I was envious. Envy is a terrible sin. Envy leads to covetousness, and covetousness leads to idolatry. You see, when we look at the possessions and the wealth and the prosperity of others and we become envious, what we're really saying is that person doesn't deserve it and I do. That's what we're really saying. We're saying I want it, I deserve it, they don't. And God, how dare you distribute that to that person and not to me. And and envy could create a, a horrible feeling is because we think that those things that other people have are going to bring us happiness. What so many people fail to realize is the more you have in life doesn't necessarily make you happy. It actually brings more problems, more headaches, more responsibility and more difficulty into your life. The wealthiest of people don't have easy lives. They may appear that way on the outside, but inwardly they're miserable. I was recently reading a story about uh, celebrity singer Britney Spears. When I was young, she was very popular and had a, a career and then it petered out, she she basically went into a downward spiral of mental illness and, and lost everything, and they took a conservatorship of her money. Well, she got it back after many years, and she went bonkers again. No matter how much money and wealth and prosperity you have, it doesn't give you stability. It doesn't give you peace of mind. It doesn't give you joy. It may seem that way on the outside, that you have peace, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And so from Asaph, who's looking merely at the externals, this is what he views. And I'll start in verse 4, listing at the things that he envied. Number one, they had no pangs until death, and their bodies are fat and sleek. Now remember something. We live in America today, and obesity is an epidemic. It's a result of having uh, too much junk food in our diets and being sedentary. In the ancient world, if you were fat, it was a sign of prosperity and wealth. You ever see some of the medieval paintings of, of women? Uh, they're, they're not uh, the, the, you know, ultra-thin models that we see in our society as the picture of beauty, but they're usually pleasantly plump because it was a sign of wealth in medieval times. It was a sign, and that was a sign of beauty. And so how we view this idea of fat and slink and versus thin, thin people were considered impoverished and starving in the ancient world and so what ASAP is looking at is, is, well, look at the rich. They're fat and sleek. They're not in pain. They seem to be comfortable. And it isn't until they die. Well, usually when people have money, they have the best of medical care. And this is especially true And you go to developing nations today. And I remember reading a story about a church in India where one of the members had cancer and they just writhed in pain on the ground until they died because they had no access to the medical care and treatment that could make them feel better. In America, even, in, even you know, no matter who you are, you have some access to medical treatment still 10 times better than in developing countries in the world. And for, just to put it in perspective, the fatness and sleekness of the wealthy, although we may have an obesity epidemic in this country, the truth of the matter is Americans are far more prosperous than anyone in the world. We may envy amongst ourselves, but we are the envy of most people in the world. The nations, some people impoverished in developing countries look at Americans and they say, look how much they have and how little we do. And so this kind of envy can, can actually develop further in other places of the world. It justifies sometimes even missionaries who, who will lie and contrive schemes to get money out of churches and they justify by saying, well, they're Americans, they have so much, we have so little. And so they are fat and sleek. They have no pangs in death. They they seem to die peacefully. And the worst part is it is, is they have no fear of God. Where's their fear of God? They 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 seem like these are people who are godless, and yet everything seems to go well. Verse six it tells us: therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Um. This, this is very true. When, when everything seems to go well, you get arrogant, you get pride, and you feel you could do whatever you want. And you could act violent against people, you could abuse people, you could treat people uh, uh, horrible because you feel that you are so prosperous, nothing is going to get in your way. Nothing is going to stop you. Uh, verse five, which I skipped over, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, the, the wicked seem to to have it easy. They have. I remember during the pandemic when we were all in lockdown, and uh, where were the celebrities in Hollywood doing? They were going on island vacations into the Caribbean. They were going to exotic uh, trips to beautiful places of the world, and there was this outrage. You know, uh, in the media, we're all suffering in lockdown in little apartments, but the rich, they could go to a private island and live the good life. And and so there's this idea that the wicked do are not stricken. They do not have the problems that we know, They don't have to work and toil for food. They don't worry where the next paycheck is coming from. They don't have to worry about uh, uh, feeding their kids. They don't have to worry about paying their mortgage. They don't have to worry about buying enough clothes. They have maids they have cooks they have everything verses seven through 9 as we talk about their pride and their violence and then verse 10 through 11 I'm sorry verses uh, verses seven their, their eyes swell out from fatness their hearts overflow with follies they scoff and speak with malice and loftily they threaten oppression. It seems as if the wicked have no restraint, and that they they feel that in their arrogance and pride that they could do whatever they want, and that nothing can stop them. Their mouths utter foolishness. Verse nine: they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Their their language is even uh, uh, wicked. Um, they they long for the praises of others. They they also. Um, rejoice in the fact that they can they can blaspheme they, they they speak against heaven itself you see when the wicked prosper believers begin to question is god really all-knowing verse 10 therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say how can god know is their knowledge with the most high That's exactly where Asaph was at this point. He sees all this going on, and he's wondering, where is God? It it seems as if there's nothing wrong with these people. God's not punishing them. God's not dealing with them. And so if they're not under God's punishment, they're not under God's judgment, they seem to be succeeding in their evil. Where's God? Maybe he doesn't see. Well, God is not blind, let me tell you that. Pastor Paul will often say the wheels of God's justice grind." Slow, but they grind exceedingly fine. And that was something that Asaph did not quite understand yet. And he's beginning to have a turnaround with this. Verse 12 says this, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And so he establishes a worldview. This is the wicked. Everything's going good for them. What's the point of serving God? That's the end result. That's the conclusion in his poor thinking. Remember I said in the beginning, he's in a slippery place. He's in a slippery place. Whenever you start to look at the world and say, you know what, all these people who don't follow God... They're living better lives than me. Why why am I serving God? What's the point? What's the use? Why don't I just curse God and go live like them? Why should I why should I go to church? Why should I live an honorable life? Why should I be honest? Why should I not cheat on my taxes? Why should I, you know, be morally pure and, and not indulge in my sexual uh, desires? Why should I do anything good? What's the use? Look at the evil. They're doing great and I'm suffering it's a slippery place to be. That's how the devil wants us to think. Have you ever been envious of the wicked? Have you ever seen the prosperity of the wicked and asked yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's a very slippery place. And I wanted to tell you a few things we have to be aware of, and that is questioning who God is. Because all of this puts us into a descent of darkness where we do not understand who God is. Number one, We question not only the justice of God, but the omniscience of God. To say, does God see? To say, as if he doesn't know, he's not aware. God knows everything. And and I want you to understand something, that if you begin to think that God does not see, or that God does not know, our view of God will become distorted, and we see God as someone who's malicious and unjust and unfair. It will erode our trust in him. And that's exactly what Satan wants. Satan wants us to question the integrity of God. That was the very thing he did in the garden when Eve uh, was tempted by Satan. What did Satan tell Eve? Don't eat of the fruit of the garden, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, God doesn't want you to eat it. Why? Because he knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. In other words, the, the whole point that Satan was trying to make to Eve was this. God doesn't like you. God is not fair. He's trying to hold something back from you. He's trying to hold back pleasure, joy. He's trying to hold back all that you could be. God is holding you back, Eve. Reach out and take that fruit and be the woman that, that you were intended to be. Reach out and take that fruit. Be empowered. Be you. Don't let no one tell you what to do, Eve. It's the same thing when we look at the wicked and we begin to envy them. We begin to question God. It's what Satan wants. He wants us to think that somehow God is depriving us of what we deserve. And then secondly, he's questioning the benefits of serving God. This is such wrong thinking because we serve God not because we want some reward for it. We serve God because we've already received our reward. We've already been forgiven. We've already received eternal life. We've already received the joy of God in our lives. What more could we want? And as a result of that, we joyfully serve. We delight in serving God. We're not looking to be repaid. You see, if we've escaped eternal judgment... We receive the gift of eternal life and serving God is never in vain. If you only serve God because you want something in return, then you're not even saved. You don't even know the Lord. That's a strong statement there, but it's the truth because you haven't really tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You haven't experienced the joy of forgiveness, You haven't experienced the delight of knowing Christ as your Savior. In Luke 17, the Lord said, when you've done all you've done to serve, you should say we are worthless servants only doing what is our duty. Serving God is our duty. C.H. Spurgeon said of Asaph, poor Asaph, he questions the value of holiness when its wages are paid in the coin of affliction. There are times we're going to have difficulties in life. There are times when we're going to we're going to suffer, but even that God is using for good to sanctify us, to mold us. You know Matthew 7:21 through 23 is quoted often. Pastor Paul quotes it often in his sermons about when on judgment day there will be so many religious people standing before Christ on judgment day and say, "Lord, Lord, and we've cast out demons in your name and we've and we've prophesied in your name." And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And there's something tragic about that, right? There's something tragic about so many religious people who will be deceived on Judgment Day. But when I look deeper into that, what I see is that they had a wrong view of their service to God. The idea was, I served you and you owe me. The idea was not based on grace, it was based on law. It was this idea that, that salvation is a gift of God, it's from the grace of God, and we serve God because we delight and desire to, and even our service to God is not something to be rewarded, but it is a gift from Him to Himself. Those who stand before God in judgment say, well, I did this for you and I did that for you, missed the whole point of the gospel. They miss the whole point of grace. The tragedy is there will be there, those on judgment day who think that God owes them for their religious duty. And Jesus says, I'll never knew you. I, I never had a relationship with you. You were never born again. You workers of lawlessness, these were people who were very active in their religion, but their hearts were utterly bankrupt. They were rebels against God's moral will. So it brings us to the turning point. Verse 15, verse 15. This is where he begins to come to a sense. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. This is the first turning point. He he has a change of heart. He is recording in the text here what he was thinking. What's the point of serving God? I kept my heart clean in vain. I washed my hands in innocence. All day long been stricken and rebuked every morning. If he starts to tell people this, he would have betrayed a generation of God's people. Let me just tell you something. When you're going through difficulty, when you're going through hard times, the worst thing you could do is tell other people it's useless serving God. I serve God in vain. To express that kind of speech to other people, to other Christians, is betraying the people of God. It's corrupting talk. And it, 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 you see, there's one difference between sharing struggles with someone and venting and venting the inner thoughts that are corrupt and, and sinful because those corrupt thoughts and those corrupt feelings have an influence on our, others around us. And when you speak thus, you betray a generation of God's people. It has a corrupting influence on others. i got to tell you, I have been around people Just the other night, I spoke to a person who's apostate, who hasn't went to church in years, and and I I was trying to encourage them to come back to the Lord, to come back to church. And the way this person was speaking was so blasphemous. It was so awful. And, And I have to tell you, when I hung up the phone, I felt dirty. I felt dirty. And there was a corrupting influence in my mind I was wrestling after I got off the phone with him that the words he was saying was affecting my thinking, and I had to right away pray and cleanse my own mind from the corrupting influence of this godless man. You don't realize how powerful words can be when you speak negative around people. That just it just it just flows. Next, Asaph recognizes he needs understanding. And this is my favorite part right here. He says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, how am I going to work through this? It seemed to me a wearisome task. It is wearisome if you try to do it in the flesh. If in the flesh you try to understand why it is that evil people do well and God's people suffer and you try to wrestle with that, it's very wearisome. You know, I've taken philosophy courses in college And they are wearisome. Anyone ever take philosophy in college? It's wearisome. I hate philosophy. Because philosophy is trying to figure out all these conundrums in life from the human vantage point. It wasn't until it says in verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned the end. Their end. It's not until you go to the house of God. Asaph, it meant going to the sanctuary of God where God is worshipped to be in the presence of God, to, to, to seek God on this. And when he put himself in God's presence, he began to have reason and understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. You want understanding, you want wisdom, you want knowledge and insight into the things of life? It begins with the fear of God. It begins with coming into the presence of God. It begins with knowing who God is. It says, then his eyes were opened, then he discerned, then he understood. We have to begin in the house of God. The more you stay away from God's presence, the more you're going to be on that slippery path. Being in God's presence can mean a few things. I think it means being among the people of God. Jesus says, Wherever there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. The presence of God is where the people of God are. You stop going to church, and you miss church for week after week after week, and month after month after month. I, I, I did that one 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 time in my walk with the Lord. I stopped going to church for one season, and it was a slippery slope that went down the tubes. As you're part of the church community, and you're under the ministry of the word, your mind is being renewed every day because the mind is a sponge. And you're out there, you're going to garbage in, garbage out. You're here, it's the goodness of God in and the goodness of God out. It's a transformation. It's an influence. And it was here where Asaph went into the temple of God. He went into the sanctuary of God. And he began to get insight and wisdom and discernment. And he recognized their end. Verse 18 through 22 tells us, Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And when when my soul was embittered, I was like a pricked in heart, and I was brutish and ignorant, like a brute beast towards you. You see, he was in the slippery place when he came to a sense. He says, you know what? God, you place them in slippery places. They're the ones that are in slippery places. And it's the end, not where they are now, but it's in the end where they will be. Don't look at the fortunes of the wicked and evil now and think that this is the way it will always be. I have lived long enough to see that people may prosper for a season, but eventually everything catches up to you. Sometimes justice comes in this life. Sometimes it doesn't. But even if it doesn't come in this life, justice comes in the next life. Remember what Jesus said of the Pharisees? He spoke of them about their arrogance and their pride and how they went around and they were outwardly religious and they fasted and they prayed in public and they disfigured themselves and they they, made, they wanted all the attention, they wanted all the glory and what did Jesus say? They have their reward. They have their reward. In other words, he wasn't one bit worried. Don't be worried about, it may seem like someone's getting all the glory and all the power and all the joy and all the delight and all the blessings of this life. Good. Let them enjoy because that's all they're getting. When Jesus said, the, "Told the parable of Lazarus and the rich man," there was a contrast there. This is coming out of Luke 15, right? And 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 the contrast is that there was the rich man who had prosperous ease and everything was well, but he died, and where was he in hell? And then you had the rich man. I mean, Lazarus who was so poor that the dogs would come and lick his wounds, he would beg for money at the gate, and and the rich man would walk by him every day and pay him no mind. He could care less about Lazarus. Whatever, get away from me, you stinky old man. And and Lazarus dies. Where's Lazarus? He's in heaven. Abraham's bosom. So now you get to the afterlife, and guess what? The tables are turned. Instead of Lazarus begging the rich man for money... The rich man's begging, Abraham, can I, can I see Lazarus? Can I just, just a drop of water to cool me from this agony I'm in? Just a drop of water. And Abraham says, nuh-uh. Just remember, when you were in living, everything went your way. Now the tables are turned. And I'm paraphrasing all this. You can look at Luke 15. I'm paraphrasing all this, but I'm trying to explain something to you. That there's this principle in Scripture, the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. There comes a point where things will turn around. And I don't care how wealthy you are, how prosperous you are, eventually things won't go your way. Eventually things won't go your way. Steve Jobs is a pinnacle example of that. All his wealth and prosperity. He was a wicked man, by the way. I'm not saying this because I knew him personally, but having read things about him, he had, did not believe in God, he was a full blown atheist he did everything to oppose God and he was, he was a man whose worldview believed that he didn't give a penny to charity not one penny did Steve Jobs ever donate to charity neither did Apple uh, uh, computers under his leadership ever donate a penny to charity, he didn't believe in it but all his money couldn't save him when pancreatic cancer took a grip of his life you know what? I don't care if you're a poor man from the city or if you're Steve Jobs. Pancreatic cancer will affect you no matter who you are. It's going to kill you. Sooner or later, things will come. Remember what Deuteronomy 32:35 says, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Jonathan Edwards comments about the slippery places. It implies that they were always exposed to sudden unexpected destruction. As he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to the fall. He cannot foresee one moment whether he shall Stand or fall the next, and when he does fall, he falls all at once, without warning. I love the way the King James Version puts it, thy foot shall slip in due time. And so when you look at the wicked, we have to realize something. Don't be envious of them. Psalm 37, 1 through 2. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Jesus would often say if the Pharisees, like I said, they have their reward. When you look at the people, don't be envious. Their riches and everything will vanish one day. They will stand before a holy God. They will stand before him naked. They will not have their wealth to protect them. They will not have their lawyers to protect them. They will not have their doctors to protect them. They will not have anyone to protect them. They will stand stripped naked before a holy God and give an account for themselves that's why the Bible says pray for your enemies don't be envious and that brings me to the the next stage of Asaph's development in his self-awareness verse 21 when my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart I was brutish and ignorant I was like a beast towards you I, I think this is so well spoken. When he was in the slippery place, and he started to have a, a wrong view of God, he realized he was acting like an animal. How can I, how can I have acted that way towards you, Lord? I was like an animal. Animals have have no spiritual dimension. Animals are creatures of instinct. They just do whatever their instinct tells them to do. Right? That's what the beast does. A beast is a is just a, a feeds the appetite, exists moment to moment, day to day, where the next meal is coming from. But we were created in the image of God as human beings. And as image bearers of God, we are able to reflect and inwardly think. And so when we have a wrong attitude like God, we're acting like animals. And then he repented. It says... In verse 23, I love this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. The beauty of this, he says, I am still with you. I am continually with you. But it's not that he's with God because he is the one holding himself up. He said, it is you who holds my right hand. That's the beauty of it. Our commitment and our perseverance and our repentance, we have nothing to boast of because it is God who holds our right hand. It is God who upholds us. Many times where we are in those slippery places, the reason why you don't slip and fall is because God is holding you by your hand. He goes on in verse 25 through 26. It brings us to our point. He begins now to realize what he does have. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Forget about being an enemy of this wicked. Asaph said, I have it all. I have God. If I go to heaven, who do I have in heaven? You. On earth, whatever goes wrong in life, I have you. And if you have Christ, you have the greatest treasure in life. I want you to think about that today. Because you could lose everything in life. You could lose your health. You could lose your family. You could lose your job. You could lose your house. No matter what you lose in this life you are still a wealthy human being. You are the wealthiest person in the world because you have God. Now that might sound like a very spiritual cliche, but this is what the word tells us. When you've, and you won't realize that until you've truly treasured Christ for all he is. You see, the reason why that's not real in some of our lives is because you haven't truly come to treasure Jesus for all that he is. You don't see him as your all in all. You don't truly enjoy him. You're not content. You're not satisfied in Christ. God is not good enough for you. You want more. When you put your heart and you put your happiness and you put your contentment in the things of this world, you will always be disappointed. You will always be let down. And no matter how much you have, it will never be enough. Remember what Pastor Paul said a couple weeks ago about Rockefeller? He said, you know, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Remember, no matter what happens in this life, your heart may fail. You You may go through difficulties. Your flesh may be falling apart. But God is the strength of our hearts. But God is our portion forever. It's a portion that can never be taken from you. That's why Jesus says, don't put your trust in riches. The the moth destroys, right? The thief steals, rust corrodes it. Things deteriorate. Things deteriorate. The things in this life that are nice have to be maintained or they fall apart. Your body needs to be maintained. It falls apart. Your house needs to be maintained. It falls apart. Your car, which was brand new out of the showroom, 12 years ago it's an old car today things fade away but the the portion of God that that's the portion in life that can never rust it could never fade away it could never be stolen it could never there there's a a, a value to the kingdom of God to having Christ that you could put not put a price tag on it. Psalm 16, verses 5 through 6, listen to what it says. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And then notice what he says in verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, David was king, but David also knew was low and abased. He, he was a fugitive and, and hid in the wilderness for, for years of his life, running from Saul. He knew what it was to abound, and he knew what it was to be abased. And you know what he could say? He could say that God is his portion. His lot has fallen in pleasant places. While he was in the wilderness, running from Saul, he's, I have God, I have it all. And so the question then comes, are you satisfied with God alone? Is God good to Israel? Is God good to his people? And is God good enough for you? When you are completely satisfied with him alone, nothing else will matter. And when you embrace such a view, the fear of loss is non-existent. The problem is when we're discontent. When you're not content in life, you're always going to look at what others have and be envious. But when you're content with where God has put you and you're content with Christ alone, then nothing in this world can take that away. Conclusion. Asaph became despondent when he focused on what he didn't have. He was envious of those who had what he wanted. And what it revealed was that his heart was not satisfied in God alone it wasn't until he turned around that he and reaffirmed his faith that he experienced the joy and the blessing of being the Lord's notice what he says in verse 27 for behold those who are far from you shall perish that means to be eternally judged you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you but for me it is good to be near God I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let that be the but God change for us today. When God becomes our portion and our strength, then it will be good to be near God. Stay close to God and you won't have these other envious things come into your life. Make the Lord your refuge. Tell of his good works to others. And then you will know the joy of the Lord. Let me quote with this this excerpt from Jonathan Edwards. Hence we may learn that whatever changes a godly man passes through, he is happy, because God who is unchangeable is his chosen portion. Though he meet with temporal losses and be deprived of many, yea, of all his temporal enjoyments, Yet God, whom he prefers before all, still remains and cannot be lost. While he stays in this unchangeable, in this changeable, troublesome world, he is happy because his chosen portion of which he builds as his main foundation for happiness is above the world and above all the changes. And when he goes into another world, he's still happy because that portion yet remains. Whatever he is deprived of, he cannot be deprived of his chief portion his inheritance remains sure to him let's pray lord god in heaven i thank you for this word i thank you for this truth that you are our chosen portion i pray father god that you would make this reveal this to us i pray that you would satisfy us and that we wouldn't look to the things of this world whether it be the material possessions whether it be the success and prosperity, whether it be the glory of men, but lo oh Lord, that we may rest in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.